rest of you, take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 4, but we're going to go back and pick up some things from chapters 2 and 3 as well. So as we stand together and read the first five verses, keep in mind that I'm really going to focus on the first couple of verses here, kind of at the end of the message, but uh, I'll lay a foundation with chapters 2 and 3 in just a moment. Uh, to the church of Corinth, we're still in the series called The Difference. Actually, we've just kind of launched out this month in this series. We'll be here all the way through April, but uh, talking about the difference that Christ has made in our lives, and as a result, the difference that we should be making in the world in which we live. A person, verse 1 of chapter 4 says, should consider us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of God's mysteries. In this regard, it is expected of managers, some translations here say stewards, and we'll point that out again in a moment, that each one be found faithful. It is of little importance that I should be evaluated by you or by human court. In fact, I don't even evaluate myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. The one who evaluates me is the Lord. Therefore, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. The way Your Word changes us and makes a difference, it sanctifies us, sets us apart, causing us to be guided by truth and by Your Spirit. Lord, I pray that today You will help us to understand more fully what it means to be a disciple of Christ and the attitude that should follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We're talking about a different attitude. Attitude. You know, uh, music is filled with attitude. A lot of times music helps us express attitude. And sometimes there are literally songs about attitude. Um, Hank Williams Jr., that great theologian of yesteryear, right? Hank Williams Jr. actually wrote a song many years ago. It seems like it'd be surprising he'd get away with writing this, but it kind of at the end it kind of explains, why, I guess, why he got away. But the song was called Attitude Adjustment, and that was kind of catchy, and I, I picked up on it in my childhood, that song, Attitude Adjustment. And I remember my mom would warn us sometimes that we were going to get an attitude adjustment if we didn't watch out, because in this song he had talked about three different situations where he resorted to violence to bring about an attitude adjustment. I think the first time was some guy he had a bar fight with. You can't have a, a good country song without a bar fight, right? Um, Kent said one time to me, he said, even country music that talks about Jesus somehow gets around to beer too. But you can't have a good country song without a bar fight. And he gave some guy an attitude adjustment. And then it was in-laws. He gave his brother-in-law an attitude adjustment upside the head too. And then later on, he made the mistake of deciding his wife needed an attitude adjustment. And he gave her an attitude adjustment. And then he received from law enforcement as he was being carried away. And even the uh, the canine unit, as, the, as what he referred to as Ren Tin Tin, was biting him so much so that he was begging to be thrown into jail that gave him himself the attitude adjustment that he needed. And so that might be an example of somebody who had a bad attitude, was in a bad place doing all the wrong things, getting the attitude adjustment that he needed. Sometimes Christians need to demonstrate a different attitude, an attitude governed by humility. John Maxwell says this about attitude. He says, your attitude determines your altitude. And by altitude, he means your level of impact in this world. Your attitude will determine your altitude. And for Christians, our attitude should be different. 
it should be one defined by humility. Now, you may think that, well, I'm just a normal person, normal attitude, and that sort of thing. What's, what should be so different about me than everybody else? Especially, perhaps, when we think of the fact we're living in the Bible Belt right here in Madison County, right here in the middle of northeast Georgia. But if you zoom out a little bit, you'll see that uh, the attitude that you are called to embrace, uh, one of humility is different from the, what the rest of our world is embracing. A, a world who embraces pride. A world who uh, looks out for number one. The attitude of those who tackle life without God perhaps was expressed in Psalm 73 as Asaph, the great hymn writer and, and song leader of many of the Psalms, talks about some of the frustration that when he was seemingly describing the problem with the attitude of those who don't know the Lord. And here's how he described it. He said, therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock, they speak maliciously, they arrogantly threaten oppression. Sounds like some of the politicians we've heard, right? They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, His people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Asaph was very frustrated about their attitude. If you go on to read the psalm, Asaph himself has an attitude adjustment. He comes into the presence of God. He has kind of a wake-up call. He realizes that he was the one so envious of the, the, what he thought was the prosperity of the wicked. He was the one that needed the attitude adjustment himself. And I won't read all. It's a long psalm. You can kind of write the Psalm 73 in your margins there and, and look it up sometime. But Asaph was kind of like Patti LaBelle, who sang about attitude. Remember her? Feeling good from my hat to my shoe. Know where I'm going. I know what to do. Tidied up my point of view. I've got a new attitude. Okay, a few of you knew that. Others knew it and were a little bit too self-righteous to say it, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, new attitude. We need a new attitude. A different attitude. What I think that the foundation is laying here in 1 Corinthians is, is that before a lot of behaviors that are going to be addressed change, God has to change us on the inside. Before our actions become what God has called us to live out, our hearts need to change. We need an attitude of humility. Humility is the key to having the attitude which makes you different, which causes you to shine like stars in this world. Humility is the key to the attitude which makes you Christ-like. word attitude of, of humility, when we think of an attitude of humility, the word humility in the English language is defined as a low view of one's importance. Biblically speaking, the word humility is not so much a low view of one's importance, but the right perspective of one's value. That you are who you are by the grace of God, not anything of yourself. So Paul is kind of laying that out, laying a foundation. We spent a lot of time in chapter one, and we're going to kind of uh, uh, select a few texts from chapter two, uh, chapters 2 and 3 as we laid this foundation a little bit with the right attitude. And I want us to think about this question. What role does the humble attitude play in building disciples? In other words, what role does humility play 
and helping you to be all that God has called you to be. Because I promise you, God has called you to make a difference in this world. He's called you to have an impact. And if your attitude is going to determine your altitude, your level of impact, then you need to say, how does humility, that characteristic of my attitude, affect everything else? And the first thing I want us to see here, kind of going back to chapter 2, is that humility governs the mindset that we're to manifest. The the mindset that we're to demonstrate in this world. And so in chapter 2, he begins speaking of the spiritual mindset and being spiritually minded. And whenever you see that word spiritual today, be sure that you don't lift it out of the context of Scripture because people use the word spiritual to mean all kinds of things. People that go to um, uh, you know, places in western North Carolina and North Georgia and climb to the top of this mountain with different rocks and crystals and things in their hand and, and they begin to meditate and, and, and say things like, I am God and I am one with the universe. You know, those are spiritual people, but they're not Christ-like people. And so let's not lift the word spiritual out of context. Let's look at it in chapter 2, and and we'll start at first with verse 6. However, among the mature, we do speak a wisdom, but not a wisdom of this age. Remember, it's the right kind of spirituality here. Or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Doesn't matter who wins the Democratic or Republican debates, rulers of this age come to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom. In a mystery. Good word there, mystery. We'll come back to that later. Which God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew it. For if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Humility is an attitude that is not embraced by this world. The wisdom of this world is a wisdom that crucifies Christ. Now we realize it was part of God's eternal plan that the Son of God would be crucified, but when we begin to seek after the wisdom of this world and and the pride that comes with worldly wisdom, it's the kind of wisdom that says we don't need God and the kind of wisdom that would crucify Christ. And then in verses 9 and 10, you often hear verse 9 at funerals, but interestingly, it's not just talking about heaven. It says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen No ear is heard, and what has never come into the heart of man is what God has prepared for those who love Him. Again, we read that often. We say, man, that's what heaven is all about. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. It hasn't entered the heart of man what God has prepared. Praise God, when we get to heaven, we're going to see and hear and experience those things that, that we've never seen and heard and experienced before and wouldn't even enter in their hearts, our thoughts, our imaginations But look at the next verse. He's quoting Isaiah, and he's quoting Isaiah's prophecies of a new covenant, a new day, a messianic age. And he says, now, now, today, God has revealed them to us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. Calling us, as we sang a moment ago, deeper still. The Spirit of God coming to live inside of us, something that in the old covenant they experienced the Spirit of God coming on them for a particular task, but this is a new and a better covenant covenant that was prophesied by Isaiah and the other prophets where the Spirit of God would come live inside of us. And he's saying, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it hadn't entered in the heart of the man. What, what God has prepared when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of people and gets them involved in the life that only God could help live through them, that brings a certain humility in our lives. 
because we realize what God is doing in our mindset, the, the attitude that we get in this process. Uh, look at verses 11 through 16, and we'll see the, the impact of the, the Spirit of God on the mind of the believer. Now, God has revealed them to us by the Spirit, verse 10. The Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the concerns of a man except the Spirit of a man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the concerns of God except for the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. In order to know what has been freely given to us by God, Peter would say later, we have everything we need for life and godliness because of Jesus Christ coming to live in us. How does that happen? By the Holy Spirit. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. That's taking place even this morning as I preach this word, as most of you hopefully listen attentively, that your heart is open, that your spirit bearing witness with the Spirit of God, that you are sons and daughters of God, desiring to grow in disciples. As a matter of fact, a lot of messages I will preach from this book to disciples of Christ I'll lose many of you if, you're, if your heart's not in tune with God and you're saying, I'm, I'm just not ready to hear what the Spirit of God wants to say to me this morning. So it's between you and God for your heart to be prepared for what the Spirit of God wants to speak into your life. But the natural man does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit, verse 14, because it is foolish to him. He is not able to know it since it is evaluated spiritually or spiritually discerned, some translations, if you don't know the Lord, if you have rejected Christ and you're saying, I'm trying to read the Bible and I just don't get it, I don't understand it. Or I hear all this preaching and you might as well be talking to a wall preacher because it's not sinking in. The Bible says that the natural man, when we're walking in the flesh or, or when we don't know the Lord, that the natural man simply can't get the things of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has to do a work that the preacher or the one who is writing the letter, the one communicating God's truth at this time, would never be able to communicate. It's amazing to me when I'm preaching the Word of God that those who are spiritually minded, that those who have a spiritual mindset can come to me afterwards and say, while you were preaching this morning, God showed me, and when they began to explain to me what God was teaching them and showing them, I was like, that's funny, I didn't remember preaching on that. But there are others who would say, you know what, I tuned you out a long time ago. My mind was on the Falcons. Well, probably not on the Falcons. Probably on something else. But those who are spiritually minded are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and, and hungry for truth. And, and, and some of you are even taking notes and journaling and, and, and want to dig deeper in the deep things of God because you've come spiritually minded. And he says the spiritual person, however, verse 15, can evaluate everything. Yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone for who has known the Lord's mind. That he may instruct him. Nobody else can get inside your soul like the Holy Spirit. That's how he works with the Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide asunder and separate joint and marrow. But we have, he says, the mind of Christ. You say, well, how does that bring about humility? It might cause us to say, man... I've got the mind of Christ. And all of a sudden we have a certain spiritual arrogance. Not exactly. When we think about the fact that as a result of all of this, we begin to have the mind of Christ. Think about Philippians 
chapter 2 and, and verses 5 through 11, one of those great passages that teaches us in, in a short passage all that Jesus did. And that passage begins with the statement from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that word mind in Philippians chapter 2, 5, in some of your translations, is the word attitude. And so he says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he says, let me explain the attitude, who being the one who was in very nature God, made himself of no reputation, uh, coming in the form of a man, not only a man, but that of a slave, that of a servant, even a bondservant, to the point that he would take up a cross and die a man's death, your death, my death, physically and spiritually, not claiming all of his rights and privileges as a son of God, but suffering as a slave and dying on a cross. The Bible says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation. So let this mind be in you of humbling yourself, of making yourself of no reputation. By the way, you say, well, what a bitter end. How does that text close out? Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of, what name? Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. His humiliation led to his exaltation. We, we, we humble ourselves, the Bible says, in the sight of the Lord. He exalts us in due time. We leave that up to Him. That's His work. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 7, we're called jars of clay. Now, now we, we, we hold a, a treasure, but we're called jars of clay, like, like, kind of like the, the, the body of a race car. It's been in a long race, and it's kind of been beat up, and it's taken a few knocks, and it's got you know, some, some burned rubber on the side of it. And it just doesn't look so good late in the race, but if it's got the right engine and the right driver and it's got the right power, it doesn't matter how ugly it looks when it crosses the finish line, there's great celebration. Sometimes in this life, we're that outer shell. And we might feel like, by this time in my life, I don't look like much. And you know, I don't feel like much sometimes. I don't smell like much. But when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us so that He is the power and He is the one driving us and he is the one guiding us all of a sudden greater is he that is in us and he is in the world and if there is any victory it's not the ugly shell that's being celebrated it's the driver that's being celebrated and that's jesus christ through his spirit living in us that means we have to change our way of thinking about who we are it's a new attitude it means romans 12 too, not being conformed to this world but being transformed by the renewing of your mind it's a new and different mindset. A new attitude, being spiritually minded. Now, let me ask you this. What preoccupies your mind every day? What, what preoccupies your mind all day long? In Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What preoccupies your mind all day? I remember one man said, I used to think of, uh, girls so much in my youth, I read that verse and thought I was going to turn into one. What pre is it the opposite sex? Young people, is it the opposite sex? What occupies your mind all day long? Is it your favorite ball team? What preoccupies your mind all day long? Is it your work that sometimes you bring home with you and you can't ever let go? What preoccupies your mind all day? Or is it that you are Matthew 6, 33, seeking first the kingdom of God and His 
righteousness, knowing that He'll take care of the rest. Your financial concerns. Is it your fear of the election? Some of you just need to go ahead and turn off the debates before they get started because it's going to so preoccupy your mind. Now listen, I'm not telling you not to be a good citizen. You need to learn who to vote for and all of that. But as Christians, we realize that we are citizens of a greater kingdom so that even though we exercise our citizenship and responsibility and vote according to the Word of God, there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so what should preoccupy our mind is the Lord Jesus Christ. That will bring about a certain uh, humility in our mindset. I want us to see, secondly, that humility gives the motivation with which we serve. The motivation with which we serve. Now, we see a lot of this foundation being laid in chapter 3, and it lays the foundation for many of the chapters and behaviors to come as we move ahead. But in chapter 3, he goes back to the issue, kind of what we touched on last week with the cliques and being united fools for Christ, but he kind of deals with the separation and the division in chapter 3. So look at verse 5. And I want you to see in verses 5 through 16, the key word, those of you who've done precept Bible studies or uh, other inductive Bible studies, you know that if there is a word that is repeated often, it's a key word, right? So look for the key word here in verses 5 through 16 as I read through this. So what is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed and each has the role the Lord has given him. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are equal. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Remember, he had already said in chapter 1, we need to quit trying to identify with all these men. We need to identify with God. For we are, he says here in verse 9, God's co-workers. You are God's field. God's building. Is he trying to get our attention to God and not man? According to God's grace that was given to me as a skilled master builder, it's okay for men to be skilled master builders. There are men and women who were involved in God's work that led us to faith in Christ. And that is awesome. We should all want to be instruments in God's hands. But we don't worship those instruments. We worship the God who used them. I thank God that there was a kids camp where I got saved where people preached the gospel. I thank God there are churches and, and great men and women of God who are influencing the next generation. But let's not get our eyes on them. Let's get our eyes on God. But each one must be careful how he builds because no one can lay any foundation, any other foundation than that which was laid. That is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds, and by the way, notice he went from general to specific. God, 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 God. In case you're wondering who we're talking about, which God? Jesus Christ. There's no other God. No other name given among men that we, by which we might be saved. Anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work, his service, will become obvious. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. There's going to be a humbling one day, right? There's going to be a humiliation one day if we don't humble ourselves now. If anyone's work he has built survives, he will receive a reward. Anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved yet as by an escape through fire. Sometimes we might call that by the skin of our teeth. Don't you know that you are God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you? There's a certain humility that comes from saying, listen, it wasn't, it wasn't Paul that did this or Apollos that did this. 
it wasn't the pastor or, or, or the teacher. It was the fact that if, that if something wonderful and exciting happened in my life, to God be the glory, great things He has done. All about God. Humility says it's not me. It's about Him. My motivation is His glory. Pride says, no, it's about being a man pleaser. It's about drawing the praise of men in this life. Humility says, no, it's got to be about the one I serve. So humility motivates us to serve God, not man. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do it passionately or enthusiastically with all your heart, knowing or, you know, he says, as some have done, not knowing the Lord, or, or something done for the Lord, not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. So Paul is saying, listen, you might want to say, I'm a Paul or I'm a Paulus. You might keep one upping one another and there'd be division in the church. Paul said, if anything has happened through my ministry, it's because God gave the enemy. If anything happened through Apollos' ministry, if anything happened because you were involved in student ministry or on a mission trip, to God be the glory for that. And we are humbled by desiring to serve in such a way that gives God glory. You've heard the phrase before, if you've ever seen a turtle on a fence post, you know he had some help getting there, right? And so when you see the people of God doing a wonderful work for God, you know that God had to do that inside them and through them. So humility motivates us to serve God in a way that gives Him the glory. I heard the story, I believe, Dr. Adrian Rogers, who said that there was a frog, and this frog wanted to fly. He would look and he would see, during a certain time of year, the Canadian geese fly over two by two, and he wanted to fly. And so one day, a couple of Canadian geese landed, and he hopped right up to him, and he said, because frogs could speak in this story, he said, I've got a great idea. You guys fly so masterfully, I know how I can fly like you. He said, I'm going to latch onto this stick over here, and when I bite down on the stick, you beautiful geese are going to pick up each end of the stick, and you're going to fly. And as you're flying, I'll be latched on with my mouth, and I'll fly. So all of a sudden, they agree to do this, and these geese pick up this stick. The frog has bit down. He's latched on and he's flying above the farm, and he looks down, and he says, this is, you know, he's thinking at least, this is wonderful, this is awesome. He sees a, a herd of cattle, and, and, and he's beginning to swell with pride as he flies above these cattle, and, and one of the cows, because they can also speak in this story, one of the cows said, look at that frog flying over us. And the other one said, well, his mouth is clamped down to a stick. That is incredible. Incredible. I wonder whose idea that was. And the frog couldn't help it any longer. And he said, Mine! <laughs> Flat. A lot of times, we swell with pride because we think we're doing something great. We forget that we are holding on to the only one who can do great things by His grace in us and through us. We are to be motivated to serve Him Asking humility, asking how can I simply be a servant? It doesn't matter if we're in Haiti or in a factory. We need to say, how can I serve? It doesn't matter if we're behind the scenes or preaching from this pulpit or leading in worship. 
Each is essential. doesn't matter if we're doing the dishes at home or after a church fellowship or leading the life group or a family devotion. Humility says, how can I serve? Finally, humility guards this mystery. The mystery that we are to steward in the verses that we just looked at in chapter 4. A person should consider us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of God's mysteries. Stewards of God's mysteries. When I talk about guarding the mystery, we're not talking about hiding the mystery. We're talking about protecting and valuing the ministry, the the mystery of the ministry that God has given us. Why why do I say ministry? He talks here about ministering, or or the word there uh, could be translated serve or minister, to be a servant or to be a minister. In, in verse 1 has to do, in the Greek, it's the, the language for an under rower. The servants who were underneath, in the bottom of the ship, below deck, they were the ones rowing, they were the ones making the ship go where it was going. And Paul says, when it comes to this great ministry, we're just kind of under rowers. We want to be out of the spotlight to give all the glory to God. It's with great humility that we're willing to serve as under rowers, he says. And we're guarding a certain ministry. We're, we're, we're made stewards or managers of this ministry. Now, it's interesting because the word serve has to do with a place of almost slavery, of servitude, saying, God, as Paul said about his apostleship, I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the word steward what was an official title Someone who was in an exalted position with a highly compensated job. So there's a little bit of a a paradox here that we are both servants and stewards, managers of resources at the same time. Specifically here, he refers to the mystery or the mysteries. What do you mean the mysteries? I like to listen to Sherlock Holmes. That's a good mystery, right? I've discovered that, some of you might remember this from back in the 70s, I've discovered that the old CBS radio shows, Mystery Theater, Radio Drama, is now available on YouTube. So I can listen from time to time to one of the old Mystery Theaters, so listen to one of these radio dramas. Is that the mystery? Is it, is it a Sherlock Holmes? Is it a... Mystery theater, what, what's the mystery? What's mysterious? Is, is it desire to be hidden? It's mysterious because all throughout the Old Covenant they were looking forward to what this Messianic age was all going to be about. It, it's mysterious for a lot of things. You want a little bit more commentary on it. Look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. In Colossians, Paul's writing... In chapter 1, verses 25 through 27, he says, I've become a minister according to God's administration. That goes back to service and, and, and stewardship and all of his responsibilities. I've become a minister according to God's administration that was given to me for you to make God's message fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, God wanted to make known to those among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery which is, listen, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the mystery. Why would the Son of God come to take up residence by His Spirit in you 
and in me. That is a mysterious thing. And so the mystery is partly the paradox of the Gospel that Christ, in all of His glory, would lay aside all of His claim to fame and would humble Himself and become the one on whom the sins of the world would be laid, and that He would die the death that you should have died and die the death I should have died, that God would love me that much, that Christ would love me that much. That's a mystery. We will never be able to wrap our minds around that. And when people come to us with tough questions from the Bible and they say, well, if you're a Christian and you believe that book, we'll answer this question. Or answer this question. Well, then answer this question. Come back and say, listen, I still haven't been able to answer the question why God would love me like He does. That's a mystery. Why Christ would give His life for me, that's a mystery. Why He would take up residence inside of me. It's partly the fact that God would save you and me. The mystery that God would make us stewards of the Gospel, though, is still a mystery. And and so humility guards the mystery of that. We do not become a people, as we discussed in our life group this morning, we do not become a people entitled, saying, well, I deserve this. Or no one deserves to go through that. Listen, anything short of hell is grace. And so it's a mystery that God would so pour His grace out on me, and He would pour His grace out on you, and that He would let us be stewards of that mystery. And so humility protects that. Humility values that. Humility guards that. I referred to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verse 7 a moment ago that we are simply jars of clay. Some translations say clay pots or earthen vessels. And the point was that a clay pot or earthen vessel was kind of the, the, the cheap dishes back in that day. You could drink from it and throw it on the ground and break it if you needed to. It was the styrofoam cups of that day. And the point was, it's not what the cup, it's not what the outer shell was made out of, it's what God has placed in it, which is His Holy Spirit, which is a stewardship, this gospel, the mystery. God has given that to you, and He's given that to me, and we would say, Lord, do you really know what you're doing, giving this mystery to us to steward? But it's His way that we become clay pots filled with a treasure. That's the mystery. Why me? I want to guard that. We want to guard it from pride. We want to guard it from impurities in our life. We want to guard it from worldly passions, worldly pursuits and pleasures. Humility guards that. We want to see it demonstrated, and we'll close with this. Look at someone who demonstrated it well. Look at the one who was first kind of given this mystery. The one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who first begin to comprehend that here's the mystery. And I've been given a great responsibility. And it was John the Baptist in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John the Baptist has some of his disciples to know that there's some that are flocking to Jesus. And they wanted their guy to be the most popular preacher in town. John responded in verse 27 this way. Now, remember this. Jesus said, there's been no greater man born of woman than John the Baptist. What made John so great was that he desired to be so small. John responded, no one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Verse 27. Then verse 28, he says, you yourselves can testify that I said... I am not the Messiah. One thing's for sure about John the Baptist. He did not have a Messiah complex. 
So many of us, maybe because of the position we have been given in our home, maybe it's because of the responsibilities we've been given in our workplace, maybe it's because of the popularity we've gained at school, maybe it's because uh, we've climbed a certain social ladder, or maybe the ladder in the workplace, we get to a place, if we're not careful, where we get a Messiah complex, and we think we're everybody else's answer to life. John the Baptist was not that way. He said, I am not the Messiah. I explained that to you, but I have sent... I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. The church belongs to them. And I know sometimes you and I are always going to say, this is my church. Listen, it's not my church, it's not your church, it's his church. The bride belongs to him. I've got a responsibility to my bride over here, so I don't have to lose sleep at night trying to make sure God's bride's okay. Christ takes care of His bride. We are His bride. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend, that's what He is. John's willing to be a groomsman here. Who stands by and listens to Him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. John's saying, there's a wedding day coming. Jesus is that great bridegroom, and I'm just pointing people to it. Then he says this in verse 30, and I pray that this will all be our prayer. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. We've been given this treasure, and we should be overwhelmed by the fact that God would pour out His grace, that His Spirit would come live in you, that Christ Himself would come live in you by His Holy Spirit. And that as we steward that, it's not just saying I'm hiding that, it's that I've been given the privilege to share that, to give that away. Would you bow your heads with me?